You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Is nature a gigantic cat? And if so, who strokes its back? May I introduce the brilliant Nikola Tesla, the greatest inventor of the age. If you Google Nikola Tesla, you get 34 million results. It's basically just four pictures. Beyond that, things get murky and more imaginative. Thomas Alva Edison. You got a light? Oh, Tesla. Didn't see you there before. I now have the pleasure of introducing you to a novel system of energy. Alternate currents. This will transform the way the world works. No, no sparks. sparks. It's perfect. Where have you been hiding? Alternating current is a waste of time. Impractical and deadly. You live in your head. Doesn't everyone? You lack funding. Mr. Tesla thinks I owe him money. What was it, $50,000? Yes. Anne Morgan, daughter of J. Pierpont Morgan. A woman like that can make all your dreams come true. All my dreams are true. <laughs> you want to lemonade? You work at night in a secret laboratory. You shoot lightnings from the earth to the sky. I'm trying to tame Wildcat, and I've become nothing but a mass of bloody scratches. Now you like being scratched. If necessary. a dream that Tesla dreamed first. folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. On this episode, I am talking with Michael Almereda, the director of the 2020 film Tesla. There must be something in the air about Tesla. Last year, we had the current war in two forms, and this year we have Tesla. This one stars Ethan Hawke as the titular inventor. We have Kyle MacLachlan as Thomas Edison and Jim Gaffigan as George Westinghouse. I recommend this film. It is a little unusual, but I like the unusual. This one should be playing in theaters, if there are theaters open, and on streaming starting today. Enjoy. I had read that you dropped out of Harvard to go into filmmaking. How did you make that decision? Was it easy or hard? 
It was one of the easier things I ever did, but it was gradual. So it, it wasn't a defined declaration. I told my parents I was taking time off. In my mind, I'm still taking time off, you know. It was less of a break than a sort of dissolve. So I um, just kind of stepped out and moved to New York, which I hadn't spent much time in New York, and I was enamored of the place. And I was able to support myself while finishing the screenplay that I had started in school and dragged along for more than a year trying to finish. So I had this resolution to write a script, and I actually wrote, wrote two in a, in a hurry, and Tessa was the first. It was an organic process of just trying to make sense of the world by writing and figuring that was the best way into the movie business. I didn't really have any experience, but I'd seen a lot of movies and cared about them deeply enough that I felt I had a conviction I could do it if I was lucky. How did you first encounter Nikola Tesla? I was an unhappy teenager, and I reached out to a number of older people that I admired, including Ray Bradbury and Chuck Jones, who met with me. And one, another person who's not as well-known is a comic book artist named Alex Toth. Another thing I wanted to do when I was younger was do comic books, and I thought that was an option. And Toth is a very brilliant artist. He's often defined as an artist artist. He had a great gift for storytelling and framing and using shadows and light. He was very cinematic, and he was also a bit of a curmudgeon. So within that world, he was sort of vocal and opinionated. And he was the kind of guy who, if he liked you, was all in. And I, I was a teenager. I would go to his house in Hollywood and listen more than talk. He was good at pontificating and doodling while chain-smoking. At one juncture, for whatever reason, he started talking about Tesla. I think Tesla accommodates people like Alex who, have, who are restless and He's not alive anymore, but there was a restless intelligence and a, and a yearning for a better world that was laced with nostalgia in Toth's case. But he really is, as a graphic artist, he's incredible. And one of the pressure points in our conversations was I was at a point in my fledgling life where I was questioning what kinds of stories were being told. And comics at that time were, they'd become more mature, obviously, they'd become more energized by contact with other kinds of experience, but the kinds of fantasy that, I mean, Toth is unique. I don't want to get into too much of a tangent, but I've had to think about him, and it's curious to try to come to terms with how sophisticated he was as a graphic artist and how silly the stories were that he was telling. But anyhow, he's, he opened that door, and he led me to a book called Prodigal Genius, which was written a year after Tesla died by someone who knew him for many years. And that book is filled with mythology, but also with great epic sweep. It's an irresistible book in many ways, and it's still a foundational book for anyone who writes about Tesla, because there's so little that's truly known. There's a lot of rumor and speculation. And, and so that book is, was the true starting point. It's now in the public domain, and in some ways that still is a foundational book for me, framing the movie that I eventually made. What was the other screenplay that you worked on besides the Tesla one? That didn't have as much luck or, or solidity, but it got me work. It was more of a comic book story called The Red Hands, and it was kind of obscurely inspired by The Shadow, you know, radio show and pulp serial. And it was set in the 30s. I was enough of a film fanatic that I had watched a lot of Von Sternberg movies. 
And that was kind of stealing from von Sternberg and Ben Hecht. And it was schematic, but there was also a character who was almost a parody of Tesla, uh, a physicist who is recruited by gangsters to solve a problem. And I haven't thought about that script for quite a while, and I usually don't even mention it, but here we are. So those two screenplays got me a, an agent, and it was a high-powered enough agent that I was suddenly employable and had a bit of a run as a Hollywood screenwriter, making decent money writing screenplays that never got filmed. Though some of them did get filmed. I know that you worked on Cherry 2000. Yeah, that was the first one that, that actually got made, and that was dismaying enough that I resolved pretty quickly that I didn't want to write screenplays for other people. I want, I could I could screw them up my own way. I had good experiences writing for Vim Vendors and for Bruce Beresford and for Tim Burton. For Bruce Beresford, I wrote a version of Total Recall, which did get made, obviously, by somebody else. And Paul Verhoeven took it and ran with it, but some of my dialogue is floating around in the movie. So I had this odd apprenticeship working with people I, I admired and watching how the machine often just sort of gobbled up the work and nothing came of it. But that's kind of inevitable, and it is hard to calculate how much luck comes into the story. But that you're sending me back because the anomalous thing about this movie that I've just made is that it truly was emerging from a script I wrote 40 years ago. And some of the scenes are intact, but most of them are wildly different. I have to ask, because we've talked about Total Recall on the show before, where was the project at like what years were this and what was the shape of the screenplay or did you just start with a page one rewrite of that i was brought in for three weeks three exciting weeks i can probably say for ten thousand dollars a week in sydney australia refining the script because they were in pre-production dino de laurentis was producing it and at least a million dollars had been spent and patrick swayze was supposed to be in it dino's company went belly up and uh, verhoeven swooped it up and within like a year very quickly he was shooting and the movie maybe i'm telescoping this but it seemed incredibly fast i'd been hired as a kind of script doctor on the strength of the cherry 2000 script which people admired for whatever reason and that that led to a lot of work for me but bruce wasn't too disappointed it wasn't really he wasn't really the right fit and it i think it turned out appropriately but there had been many scripts and many, I think Cronenberg was attached to it at one point. That would have been a very different movie as well. But the framework, the actual structure that I was brought on to work within was pretty intact. And in many ways, Verhoeven respected or embraced what was already done, but he brilliantly enhanced it with certain set pieces and um, effects. But the, the standout scene where the, the main character is, he's faced with a kind of, slimy obsequious therapist who says if you shoot me it's your last chance you'll be insane and you're just you'll just be living a delusion for the rest of your life and then a drop of sweat goes down his forehead and our hero decides it's worth the risk and he shoots him i read many drafts of the thing before i was brought on to to really do whatever i could do that central scene was always in the movie my dialogue was rescued from a scene in the middle of the movie, and it's the final dialogue in the movie. They kept my dialogue intact. <laughs> it's very funny to to live with that. It was a beautiful three-week experience. So you said that, Tesla, there are some scenes that are the same as they were in, what was this, 83, I read? Yeah, it was optioned in 82 for 
Jerzy Skolnowski, a great Polish director who I hope you're familiar with. He's, he's still working. I got back in touch with him because all these memories have been stirred up. He's in Sicily. He got stuck there. But he also got recruited somehow, I think, by HBO to make a film there. So he's, he's doing okay. He had um, finished Moonlighting and won a Best Screenplay Award at Cannes. And he was trying to spread his wings and make an English, another English language movie. And, and fate threw us together at the Chateau Marmont swimming pool where I overheard him dictating a screenplay to a woman in a bikini. He was saying, Tesla, Edison, Tesla, Edison. I had a job writing, rewriting Mandrake's a Magician. I was somehow a comic book guy back then. And um, that movie never got made either. But when I heard the Tesla Edison discourse, I said, who is that? And I was introduced and I had the temerity to say, oh, I'm, I have a Tesla screenplay, you should read it. And Yerge, to his credit, bravely read it and optioned it. And we, we worked on it together in, in England and then the whole thing fell apart. But it was intended for Jack Nicholson, who was at the time. Nicholson had developed an enthusiasm for Tesla after a cab driver described Tesla to him. So there's all, you know, people have been fired up about this guy for a long while. He's both neglected, but he, he, is, a, he is a cult favorite. And I don't know, um, this is a big sidewinding answer, but there are a lot of, lot of th- interconnecting threads. With this screenplay, was this one of those where after it fell apart the first time, did it come back and haunt you every few years? And you're like, okay, now I'm, I'll try to make this in 95. I'll try to make this in 2000. Or did this just kind of sit in that back burner until recently when you were able to finally make it? It was beyond the back burner. I didn't, I thought about Tesla a lot because the books that have come out in subsequent years are all pretty good, if not truly fascinating. And I kept up with them with a, in a wistful and sometimes jealous way when I would hear reports of a Tesla project about to get made. But those didn't get made either. But I didn't try because I knew that the, the, the canvas was beyond my means. I've, I've insisted on having freedom when I make my movies to have final cut. And you don't do that. You can't acquire that at this sort of budget level that I thought the Tesla story required. But I've become, I hope, resourceful enough or both resourceful and impatient enough that it seemed like this could be brought off within a certain style of filmmaking. And my initial script was, I think, unaffordable for most filmmakers. It's a science fiction story set in the past. It's a huge story. It's epic, and it's got a lot of um, effects and a lot of horses and carriages and people wearing 19th century outfits. So I winnowed it down considerably, and I, I approached the whole thing on a slant, and it's a radically different approach. But I hope it's as effective or as worthwhile as anything I would have done 40 years ago. I think there's room for many Tesla scripts, many Tesla movies, certainly. And I've been without being too apologetic, describing this movie the way I described my version of Hamlet, but it's just our approach, our take on Tesla. He's rich enough, complicated enough, that there are many other ways to tell the tale. Was Hamlet the first time that you and Ethan Hawke worked together? Yes, yes, but it, we'd, we'd met a while before that. We were friendly and pretty well acquainted, all things considered. Part of the luxury of that was that I could I could approach him directly. We we met in a bar and talked about it. I didn't have to go through an agent. There's one previous kind of collaboration in that after I did 
that Nadia, the vampire film you mentioned, at Sundance, I was so, um, oh, I can admit it, I was alienated at Sundance when I was there, and I contrived a way to try to break through that by making a film at Sundance called At Sundance, where Amy Hobby, the producer, and I passed a camera back and forth in my hotel room talking to any director, any filmmaker who would who would come to talk to us about the state of film. And Rick Linkletter and Ethan came together. <clears throat> and I could justify having Ethan there because he was a filmmaker already at that point. He'd made a short film that I really I admire still called Straight to One about his own parents. <clears throat> so Ethan in this film, which I think might be YouTubeable now, it's filmed in Pixel Vision. Ethan um, and Rick were kind of the standouts of, you know, there are about 40 or at least 40 people that we interviewed. And some of them became stars and were stars already. Some of them remain obscure, but it's a great rogues gallery. And Ethan was very um, impressive to me in his enthusiasm and his sincerity and his intelligence. And so in a way, I think of that as our first collaboration, even though it was just, it was just an interview, but that, that solidified something for me. And Hamlet was also, um, Kyle McLaughlin was in that as well. Yep. Yeah. So that was a self-conscious effort to get the band back together, as Kyle likes to say. I'd been in touch with Kyle, but not much. I'm much closer with Ethan and I. He's more or more in each other's lives. But Kyle is such a great spirit, and his schedule was tricky, and we, we had a narrow window, and the first days of the shoot were our days with Kyle. He was just available for the first burst of activity, and he did energize everyone, and the movie was off to a great start with his participation. So how did Tesla finally get greenlit? Was it just the paring down and the decision to, to do the more stylistic approach? Were you able to then finally get it off the ground that way? It was a miraculous fluke. I'm not sure how to tactfully say it, but the producers tried everywhere and every door was closed. And then Millennium, who came to the rescue, an unlikely rescuer, I, I really didn't press my luck too much by asking too many questions. They wanted to make a movie with Ethan Hawke. That's the only reason the movie exists. The fact that I was directing it, the fact that it's about Nikola Tesla, I'm not convinced that mattered very much. You know, like, like I said, I didn't want to probe too much. I just accepted their goodwill and their the budget they gave me. And the budget was defined by what they calculated a movie with Ethan Hawke would gather up in this wide world. So it was a very hard and in some ways illogical figure. And the movie was then trimmed and tailored to meet that figure. And it was not an easy thing to do. But I, at the same time, I don't mean to complain about it. I felt very lucky and still do. But it was, a, it was roundabout. It was backwards. And again, as, as with Hamlet, I really do owe it to Ethan, his commitment, his goodwill, his eagerness and readiness to find the whole movie. So it sounds like the budget was definitely something that was of concern, let's say. But I think it actually turned the film into something that stands out even more than it would have normally. Well, I'll accept that. I won't argue with that. I think almost every movie I've made has been a kind of magic trick dealing with uh, dodging the, the oppression or the limitations of a low budget and making the best of it. So all I can say is we did our best. No one was completely satisfied with the amount of money we had, but we did what we could. But were you ultimately satisfied with the film overall? 
I'm never satisfied. So I'm um, that's one of my big defects. I'd be better at counting my blessings. The movie, I mean, I think part of the miraculous nature of the film and most of my films I'm pleased with, if not happy with, have to do with the actors. And I'm, I've been lucky with actors. So the cast, I think, you know, laterally, I was able to work with people I really admire and I wanted to work with. And they came to the table without requiring the big budget or the big paycheck. And so that's my that's my abiding luck. In addition to Ethan and Kyle, Eve Hewson, I think, is is really spectacular in the movie. And um, Jim Gaffigan has become a friend. He grumbled at one point, I'll be your De Niro. He'll be ready for anything. He was, he was in Experimenter, and I look forward to working with him again. My old friend Carl Geary is not a conspicuous presence in movies because he's kind of retired and become a novelist, but he played Horatio in Hamlet, and I was glad to carve out a space for him in this. He played uh, Samuel Insult. Now, Samuel, I can't, I can't, I'm getting the names mixed up at the moment. He played Edison's right-hand man. And in a beard, he's sort of unrecognizable, but he was um, great to have around for this adventure. Hannah Gross was in Marjorie Prime, and I'd like to work with her again. Donnie Keshawartz, who was also an experiment, he plays J.P. Morgan. So the, the cast is, that's the one secret weapon I'm able to bring to bear, even when the budget is threadbare. How did COVID affect the film? Was this supposed to come out much earlier? <laughs> I mean, COVID has affected everyone to such an overwhelming degree. I don't know how to answer the question, but in, in some ways, the fate of the film seems trivial to me. I mean, I mean it can be cheerful, cheerfully just sort of dismissive. It's just a movie. In this case, it may actually be a kind of luck because they just provided me with a list of theaters, unlikely as it seems, that the film's going to show in over 70 theaters. None of my movies have been in, the re in recent times have had that kind of reach. I can't imagine who's going to show up, but it's phenomenal. And they're, they're drive-ins as well. So the, the approach was when the, and the movie was at Sundance, and it was, I'd say, well-received. And IFC bought it, and they're good at what they do. And they had been saying in theaters and streaming August 21st. So that had been a stable statement for quite a while. And uh, they'll do their best with it. But I, I imagine the real life of the film will be streaming. That's the fate of most movies these days. We know that. Are you able to work on anything at the moment? Are you writing stuff? I am. I'm writing a good deal. And I, I'm feeling worse for wear like everyone else. But I think I have my... Um, people say people who are more recessive or shy or interior are going about their lives in a more regulated way because of so I, can, I think I can fit into that category. But trying to see beyond it is more suspenseful. I've, I've talked to a few people who are primed to jump back in, and it seems doable, but then the daunting figure is 15 to 20% added to the budget to accommodate the proposals. Now, that's, that's not a very viable for independent, low-budget films. So it's spooky, um, but there, there are spookier things in the world right now. But it's a huge issue, obviously. Mr. Almereda, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Don't ever call me Mr. Almereda again. Bye. Bye. <laughs>